Hello and welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is episode 010, and today what we'll focus on is book two of Homer's Iliad. In the former few episodes, I think the last three, we introduced the Iliad, we talk about we talked about what happened in book one of the Iliad, we introduced some of our major characters, including Agamemnon and Achilleus, and today in book two, we're going to continue forward. So first, let's quickly review what has happened. Agamemnon and Achilleus came into conflict in book one. Agamemnon is the greatest leader of the Achaeans. Who is Achilleus? Achilleus is their greatest warrior. What is the relationship? So to, sort of like a great coach and a great player. However, in this moment, they have conflict. Why? Agamemnon is asked to get, give his concubine, which is his slave who acts as a wife to him during battle, in order to relieve plague from the Achaeans who he rules. He does so. However, petulantly and angrily, he demands uh, a new concubine. And from whom does he demand a new concubine? His best athlete, his best warrior, Achilles. Achilles, enraged at this slight of honor, leaves the battlefield, leaves council, and says he will not fight for Agamemnon anymore. <clears throat> Achilles, after returning to his tent and um, giving without fight to Talthibius and Euripides, the heralds of Agamemnon, his concubine then summons his mother, a goddess, Thetis, who Zeus, king of all the gods, owes a favor to. Achilleus asks his mother to ask Zeus to punish the Achaeans for slighting him and his honor, and asks that they be harmed in a way even worse than he's been harmed himself. And so book two begins with Zeus immediately acting on his promise to Thetis, because Zeus agrees. So, this is what happens. Zeus summons a dream, an evil dream. An evil dream because it is a false dream. And this false dream he sends down to Agamemnon as he sleeps. And as Agamemnon sleeps, this dream takes the form of Nestor, his wisest counselor, and says this to him. Agamemnon, should you array your troops and fight tomorrow, you will surely defeat the Trojans. And then the dream leaves and Agamemnon wakes up. Now, you might well consider that a good, discriminating leader would perceive a dream and perhaps think one of two things about it. This dream is either true, as Agamemnon will of course assume, or that this dream represents some wish fulfillment or some fantasy that I have. As all people know, a dream can be either true or false, and as Agamemnon, as we know of Agamemnon, if you assume only the good thing will happen, rather than looking at the potential for consequences, well, potentially the opposite from what you want to happen is what will happen. And so, let's see how Agamemnon defines his battle strategy for the next day. Because after he has this dream, he summons a council. Council has the leaders of all the Argives, all the Achaeans with it, including Nestor, his top guy, the wisest guy around. Nestor is, so far as we know, never wrong when he gives advice. So, well, let's see what Agamemnon says to him. Well, so, first and foremost, and I always think this is funny, Agamemnon says, Nestor, and those around me, I have had a dream. And it sort of reminds one of The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy says, and you were there. 
And you were there, and you were there at the end of it all. And Agamemnon says, yes, Nestor, in my dream, in my dream, you appeared to me. You of all people. And in my dream, you said, should we mount an attack against the Trojans today, that we will win this long, 10-year-long war, finally, and we'll come to its conclusion. Now, you should keep in mind what Nestor is hearing at this particular moment. He's hearing from his leader, who just made the biggest mistake that he has made in his entire 10-year career as warlord, that today on the next day afterwards, without his greatest champion, who is almost fully responsible for the 23 victories over cities that we've seen before, 12 naval, 11 uh, terrestrial battles, <clears throat> Agamemnon is saying, not only have I just lost my best warrior, but the reason why I think we're going to win today is because I had a dream where a very wise man, you, Nestor, told me that I would win. So now talking to actual Nestor, he tells him that the reason he thinks that the Achaeans are going to win the battle this next day is because he had a dream with Nestor in it, which is insane. And in fact, Nestor says something very similar to this. He says, well, great king of men, Agamemnon, if, uh, if any other Achaean were to come to me and tell me at this moment that he had a dream suggesting that we would win on today, of all days, I would call him a liar. <clears throat> but since you're the ruler over all our men here, well, I suppose that's what we have to do. And something you may well want to focus on in this moment is this. If Nestor is the wisest counselor of Agamemnon, Agamemnon has just shared a very, very poor idea of his, not recognizing his situation and clearly emphasizing some desire, some wish fulfillment. <clears throat> you might ask, why does Nestor not speak the truth to Agamemnon? Because what better thing could a counselor do for his king? Well, remember what happened in book one. When Achilleus stood against Agamemnon, even though he did it for the Achaean people and not simply selfishly for himself, what was the outcome? What were the consequences? Oh, well, he had his concubine and therefore his honor slighted. So what must be in Nestor's mind as he does not speak honestly to his leader? Well, it must be that he fears that Agamemnon will overreact and punish him if he speaks the truth. And so what's the fallout of this? Well, many men are going to die because Agamemnon has made it so that even his closest counselors cannot be honest with him. And so what is it that we're supposed to learn from this moment? That there's nothing worse you can do as a leader than punish those beneath you for speaking the truth. Because when they stop speaking the truth, your entire organization will be harmed. <clears throat> And so, we move forward. Agamemnon then summons a general assembly. So a council involves bringing the captains, the leaders of men, the men who command contingents of individuals from varying places around um, Argos and the place that would eventually become mainland Greece and the surrounding islands. Um, a general assembly involves all individuals. And so Agamemnon decides to lift his voice 
and give a speech to the Achaeans. And now, again, observe that Agamemnon makes many mistakes as leaders, and we'll see each and every single one of them. As you might imagine, that he represents that leader, which you could be, but you could also improve upon if you had wisdom from his prior experience and mistakes. So, what does he do? Well, Agamemnon is not a great speaker. And in fact, when he addresses all the men, he fails to account for just how tired and disheartened they are after almost 10 years of fighting and being away from their wives and their children and their homes and their entire lives. And so in his speech to the Achaeans, thinking that reverse psychology will work, he says, Achaeans, I know that you are dispirited and feeling weak. Why don't we just, these Trojans, they're so gifted and strong. You know what? I think, I think we should just go home. And so giving this speech, Agamemnon's hope, of course, is that his men will hear this and say, No, absolutely not, Agamemnon. We, we will strive for greatness. We will fight today as hard as possible, and we will defeat the Trojans, as your dream told us. We must. No, 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 no. That's not how this speech goes at all. Not even a little bit. Because as all the men, and you might imagine that the men who are officers are the only men who really want to be there because they're fighting for glory and possessions, which they'll take back to their kingdoms and continue to rule there. However, the men who follow them will receive much, much less. And so the men who follow them have much, much re less reason to be there. And so the men who follow the captains and the other kings and generals, well, they're, they're eager to go home. So they all start rushing back to their ships with happiness. They all think, oh my God, we can finally go home. Absolutely, we're free. You might imagine that it's the best moment of the entire text for several of these men, many of whom will later die. And so the men start to scatter and run back to their ships. It is an utter catastrophe. Agamemnon, who had had a dream indicating to him that the Achaeans would defeat the Trojans today, who summoned uh, 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 an entire assembly of the men, hoping that they would they would insist on fighting and that they would go and crush the walls of Troy in this very day, now sees his men streaming to their ships and all that he has worked for falling away from him as he watches. As this happens, Hera from Olympus sees this, calls down to Athena and says, Athena, go fix this situation. Athena works through the wisest individuals and as she walks with Nike, which is where we get the word Nike, or Nike, just do it, goddess of victory, she's always with the winners. When Athena is with an individual, should she love that individual, she's going to help them win. If Athena hates an individual, she's going to trick the individual and ensure that that individual does not win. And we'll see that in book four with someone named Pandaros. And then again in book five to see his great war reward for that. So, 
Athena goes down invisible to the Achaean battlefield where she finds Odysseus, most clever of the Achaeans. She conveys to Odysseus, you need to fix this situation immediately. And so Odysseus goes about and he distinguishes between the men who are captains, who he asks to form up his men, and those who are sort of enlisted men, whom he strikes with his scepter. And so when Odysseus addresses the captains, and I'll read a small quote, and this is not from my favorite translation of the Iliad. I'll often read from Richmond Lattimore's, and of course that's where I take my pronunciations from because he uses largely the original Greek pronunciations. This translation is from Stanley Lombardo, but this is Odysseus addressing the, the captains that he meets. What's gotten into you? I don't mean to frighten you as if you were a coward, but sit down here yourself and make your men sit down. You don't really know Agamemnon's mind. He's just testing us now. But before long, he's going to come down on us hard. Didn't we all hear what he said in council? If he gets angry, the whole army had better watch out. Kings are bred by Zeus and have tempers to match. Those are lines 208 to 214 in book two or so. But if he caught any of the ordinary soldiers yelling, he would belt him with the staff and maul him out. You there, who do you think you are? Sit still and listen to your betters. You are a weakling, unfit for combat, a nothing in battle and in council. Do you think every Greek here can be a king? It's no good having a carload of commanders. We need one commander, one king, the one to whom Zeus, son of Cronus, the crooked, has given the staff and the right to make decisions for his people. And so Odysseus mastered the army. The men all streamed back from their ships and huts and assembled with a roar. And that's from book two, lines 216 through 224 or so. The Lombardo translation, the line numbers are a little difficult to decipher. And so what we observe there is that Odysseus is an operator within the world. When Odysseus is given a task, he successfully completes it. And we've seen that happen twice now. In the first book, he was given the task to uh, co uh, conduct a hecatome to Apollo with Chrysus in order to expiate the sin of Agamemnon, which he successfully did. He has now been given the task directly by Athena to remaster the troops of the Achaeans after the king of the Achaeans, Agamemnon missteps, commits a faux pas, and does not read their psychology correctly. So what do we see is a major difference between Odysseus and Agamemnon from the get-go? Odysseus succeeds where Agamemnon fails. Odysseus succeeds because rather than living in a world of fantasy and wish fulfillment, Odysseus recognizes the realities of the world which allows him to operate successfully within the world. We now are given something of a foil to Odysseus. And we are introduced to a man called Thersites. Thersites of the endless speech, who receives the greatest and the longest <laughs> physical description of any individual in the Iliad. They had all dropped to the sand and were sitting there, except for one man. Thersites, a blathering fool, and a rabble-rouser. This man had a repertory of choice insults he used at random to revile the nobles, saying anything he thought the soldiers would laugh at. 
He was also the ugliest soldier at the Siege of Troy. Bow-legged, walked with a limp, his shoulders slumped over his caved-in chest. And up top, scraggly fuzz sprouted on his pointy head. Achilleus especially hated him, as did Odysseus, because he was always provoking them. Now he was screaming abuse at Agamemnon. The Achaeans were angry with him and indignant. But that didn't stop him from razzing the warlord. What's wrong, son of Atreus? Something that you need? Your huts are filled with bronze and with women. We Achaeans pick out and give to you first of all, whenever we take some town. Are you short of gold? Maybe some Trojan horse breeder will bring you some out of Ilion as ransom for his son, whom I or some other Achaean has captured. Maybe it's a young girl for you to make love to and keep off somewhere for yourself. It's not right for a leader to march our troops into trouble. You Achaeans are a disgrace. Achaean women, not men. Let's sail home in our ships and leave him here to stew over his prizes. So he'll have a chance to see whether he needs our help or not. Furthermore, he dishonored Achilles, who's a much better man. Achilles doesn't have an angry bone in his body. Or this latest atrocity would be your last son of Atreus. The lines there around book 2, 230 to 261. And that was the abuse Agamemnon took from the mouth of Thersites. Odysseus was on him in a flash, staring him down with a scowl. And so let's think about this for a moment. Thersites, he receives that physical description. For one, he's called by Homer directly the worst of the Achaeans, and he is least beloved by Achilleus and Odysseus. Why is he least beloved by Achilleus and Odysseus? Because Achilleus is the man who represents imminent ability, and Odysseus represents imminent ability with an understanding of order. So, what is it that Thersites represents? The opposite of those two. If Achilleus is tall, beautiful, and noble, Odysseus, is, or rather, Thersites is short, ugly, and like an invalid. If Odysseus loves ordered speech, which brings people back into order, then Thersites, of course, loves the opposite, disordered speech. And though you can say on the one hand that he is a good speaker and that he uses words, well, you might also say that he uses words to the opposite purpose for which they exist, which is to disorder men and to stir up their emotions rather than to restrain their emotions, which will be a major theme in not only the Iliad, in the Odyssey, but the major theme in the Aeneid when we get through it. So whereas Odysseus can calm and cool the emotions of men so that they may be cool and level-headed, Thersites does the opposite. And so Thersites is the worst and ugliest of men. And something that will happen at this time in the Iliad is that if a man is in some way lacking in a physical way, that is considered a lacking, uh, a lack in some sort of moral way too. Just as his character is unformed, so is his body would have been the original idea, that there is some indication from the waves above of the depths below. And so Odysseus takes this moment to address Thersites, whom he utterly hates. Mind your tongue, Thersites. Better think twice about being the only man here to quarrel with his betters. I don't care how 
bell-toned an orator you are. You're nothing but trash. There's no one lower in all the armor there army that followed Agamemnon to Troy. You have no right even to mention kings in public, much less badmouth them so that you can go home. We have no idea how things are going to turn out, what kind of homecoming we Achaeans will have, yet you have the nerve to revile Agamemnon, son of Atreus, the shepherd of the people, because the Danaean heroes are generous to him? You think you can stand up in public and insult him? Well, let me tell you something. I guarantee that if I ever catch you running on at the melt again, as you were just now, my name is not Odysseus, and may I never again be called Telemachus's father if I don't lay hold of you, strip your ass naked, and run you out of the assembly and through the ships, crying at all the ugly licks I land on you. And with that, he wailed the staff down on Thersites' back. The man crumpled in pain, and tears flooded his eyes. A huge bloody welt rose on his back under the gold staves force. And he sat there astounded, drooling with pain and wiping away his tears. The troops, forgetting their disappointment, had a good laugh at his expense, looking at each other and saying, Oh man, you can't count how many good things Odysseus has done for the Greeks. A real leader in council and in battle. But this tops them all, the way he took the loud mouth out of commission. I don't think he'll ever be a man enough again to rile the commanders with all his insults. And those are lines 267 or so to 299 in book two. And so what have we just heard? Well, basically, Odysseus has put Thersites in his space, in his place. Regardless of how well it is that you think you speak Thersites, you speak to the worst possible purpose of people, and you have no purpose speaking at all because you have no rank, and you are no not skilled enough to, to speak in such a manner. You have no authority. And in fact, if you talk this way again, I'll strip you naked and whip you all the way back to your ships for everybody to see. And just to make sure Thersites gets the point, he bangs him on the back and Thersites cries one single round tear. And all the men around see this putting to order of Thersites, who is essentially the whipping boy for the entire Achaean army in this moment. And they all laugh. And though Odysseus has been a talented fighter and strategist, and is one of the most valuable Achaeans and will turn out to be perhaps the most valuable Achaean, they say that of all the great things he's done, nothing has been so good as beating Thersites on the back for all his endless speech. Which is pretty funny, all in all. And so Odysseus has returned the men to order and taken them from disarray. And now they are prepared to listen again. However, they're not yet prepared to fight. And so Odysseus does what Agamemnon ought to have done and shows us as foil to Agamemnon how a good leader motivates his troops through understanding them and shared experience. And so he tells a story to the troops. He says, how quickly you forget. Was there not once a time when we saw a crazy portent of nine baby sparrows with their mother and a snake was coming towards these sparrows? And the snake, while the mother squawked and fought, powerless, consumed all nine of her babies. And then, 
after she had seen this all happen, consumed her. And Odysseus said, Did we not then have recourse to Calchas, our prophet? And did not then Calchas tell to us what the meaning of this was, that we should suffer nine long years at Troy, and in the tenth we should be victorious? And in fact, if I think now, how many years have we been here? Nine, and we are in the tenth. And so the battle, the war, could not last so much longer than it currently has. And in fact, think, men, were you to return to your homes after ten long years with nothing in your hands, would you not think that disgraceful? Would you not think that dishonorable and know that I too miss my home, my bed, my wife? <laughs> but is it not even more important to return to one's bed, home, and wife with something to show that one's effort was worthwhile? And so the men... The men are persuaded. And as the men are persuaded, Nestor gives advice to Agamemnon, suggesting, well, Agamemnon, now what we have seen through the men streaming back to their ships after your speech is that there are some amongst them who have turned coward, who no longer wish to fight. Those men we should put in the middle ranks. Why the middle ranks? Because if you're left in the middle ranks, what option left do you have in a battle but to fight? And so Agamemnon agrees, and the Achaeans prepare to take the field as they will in book three. And so, a very interesting moment occurs at the end of book two, which is generally the least interesting moment to read. It's called the Catalog of Ships, where Homer will invoke the muse for the second time, and ask for the muse to sing through him to talk of all the Achaeans who came to Troy and also those of the Trojan allies who came to Troy, often not by ship. But I thought I might just take a moment here to mention a couple of key facts about the catalog of ships. For one, it starts the epic tradition of listing and cataloging. And should you have the opportunity to read the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes or the Aeneid, or the Divine Comedy, or Milton's Paradise Lost, you will see such lists given in epic convention. And it's often a chance for the poet to demonstrate technical ability. And also, potentially, if you're a reading, reader of the Old Testament, to show something of a genealogy of events, how things happen, and what is maintained by poetry and song. The history of a thing, you might say. And so what we learn from this catalog of ships is that Agamemnon is richest. He brings 100 ships. We learn that Nestor brings 90. Idomeneus, another captain, brings 80, as, long as, as well as his henchman or Lieutenant Marianes, who's well known for his very nasty kills, and we will focus on the, in on that at one moment. He likes the men he kills to die screaming will often attack major organs of those individuals so that they die being poisoned by that which exists within them already, which is perhaps itself a metaphor. Achilleus brings 50 ships. Menelaus brings 60 ships. Aias the Lesser, and this is sort of ironic, he's called Aias the Lesser because he's smaller in size than Aias the Greater. Well, he brings 40 ships. 
Well, how many ships does Ias the Greater bring, who's so much larger? Well, he brings 12. And so you might well understand that Ias the Greater and Ias the Lesser's names are ironic, because though Ias the Greater is larger in size, Ias the Lesser is much larger in terms of wealth than is Ias the Greater. And Odysseus himself only brings 12 ships, and his ships are said to be painted red or vermilion on the side. And if you were to read the catalog of ships, you would find that Odysseus found himself right in the middle. And, in fact, when you hear about the distribution of the ships of the Achaeans in Book 10, alongside the beach of Troy, you'll find that Aias the Greater keeps his ships at one edge, closest to the Achaean wall, which is built. Achilleus at the opposing end, both trusting their strengths, and Odysseus, as usual, taking the middle way. And You might also understand that if Odysseus brings amongst the fewest ships of the Achaeans, he is amongst the poorest. And yet, as we've seen, in that he reorganized the men and was used by Athena, goddess, closest to victory of all goddesses beyond the goddess of victory because of her wisdom, that even in book two we can see that that which has most value is not simply wealth or property or men, but that to bring people to order by measured speech, the logos, is the most valuable thing that humans knew and continue to know to this day. And so that's our lecture on book two of Homer's Iliad. And so let's recap. An evil dream was sent by Zeus to Agamemnon, and he sent this dream in agreement with Thetis to harm the Achaeans. And so this dream, which told Agamemnon that the next battle he fights, which should be this day, will win Troy, will obviously be untrue. So we'll see the Achaeans falling into a trap here. We saw Agamemnon attempt to organize and rouse his men. He failed using reverse psychology, failing to understand the state of his men. Hera and Athena then worked together to get Odysseus to set the troops back in order. Odysseus then himself deals with Thersites of the endless speech after organizing the men and having them recover their wits and the reason why they're fighting. Nestor then organizes the men into ranks and makes sure the cowards are in the middle. And then we have a brief excursus through the very famous catalog of ships on just how wealthy each and every man happens to be. And so, on our next episode, 011, we'll talk about Book 3, and we'll see the very first battle between the Achaeans and the Trojans in the Iliad, which will be a rehashing, essentially, of the very first battle of the Achaeans and Trojans. And during that battle, we'll see Paris for the first time, we'll meet Menelaus, and we may even see a one-on-one -on -one combat. Ah, and if you are wondering if we will ever see the inside of Troy, we will. If we'll ever meet their emperor, Priam, father to Hector, Yes, and there we'll finally meet the most beautiful woman ever to have existed, Helen.
the woman who launched a thousand ships. And there, where we meet her, we'll have our first experience of her, hear her first words, and start to learn the character of the woman who caused all there is. Well, all right. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 010, lecture on Homer's Iliad, book two. Next podcast will be on book three. Please continue to listen. Please continue to share. Please continue to call in. Please continue to ask questions and to comment. And if there's anything that I have not lectured on or any question that I have not addressed, please feel free to ask them and I can address them during the next podcast. It's always helpful. Uh, One thing about doing a podcast that I don't get that I have with students is that I don't have questions that I can take in order to clarify issues at all times. So whenever you do have a chance to ask questions, since it can't happen directly since we're not in each other's presence, well, please do ask them because clarifications are often where the greatest learning occurs. If you just think about where the word clarification comes, clarus, bright or shining in Latin, well, it makes perfect sense. To take something which is unclear or unshining, to clear it up so that it might shine through, well, that's how all learning and brilliance and intelligence works, you might say, like looking for gold in a pan. This has been Alexander Schmidt. Have a wonderful Sunday and look forward to the next podcast on book three of Homer's Iliad. Until next time.